Thank you for this opportunity once again to uh, to speak to you uh, from the book of Zechariah. We'll be ready for chapter 7. I might just mention where we are in the book. Uh, really the first uh, six chapters are mainly visions. There's an introductory first six verses that call for repentance and there's a sort of a tying it up uh, at the end of chapter uh, 6. And then chapters 7 and 8 are sort of a transition. They deal with a a question of uh, a contemporary to, to Zechariah that the people want to know the answer to. And then when you get to chapter 9 and following the rest of the book, it's talking about the future. And so you'll see the phrase, in that day or at that time, speaking about something uh, much distant in the future, and we know it's speaking about uh, the coming of Christ. So the, the last section, last five chapters are really looking prophetically forward to Christ. So we're dealing uh, today with a a question that the people have. Let's uh, read uh, chapter 7. This is God's inerrant and infallible word. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Megan Regimalek and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain as in the fifth month, as I have done so for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And you eat and you drink? Do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were these not the words the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. And they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate.
As I mentioned at the beginning of this series, uh, the book of Zechariah is, is a book of encouragement. And so we've already talked about some of the encouragements that God has given to his people. Uh, maybe the key one is, I will be with you. That God's presence was again being restored to his people. And the secondary promise then was, uh, my plans for you are for good. And that they would prosper in the future. But here we have a, a different kind of encouragement. It's an encouragement to think about the past and not to repeat the mistakes of the past. How the people lived before who were visited by the, the former prophets. And don't do what they did. And so the encouragement is is to have a different heart, a different attitude, to to think and not be stubborn and rebellious the way their forefathers were. And so we could go through and see the various ways that the the people had been insincere in what they were doing. And so there's a condemnation of fasting that is just superficial, not of the heart. You can find that in Isaiah 1 and, and Psalm 51, the, the trampling of God's courts, but not with sincerity. In the New Testament, Jesus in the Sermon Mount can, condemns uh, things that are done for appearance, the giving of alms, the praying on the street quarters, yeah. fasting. And showing yourself thinned out and gaunt-looking because of your fasting. And the encouragement is, don't be like that. And so the men are coming with a, a question to him. And it's a, it's a teachable moment. They're, they're, they're thinking through an issue. And they want to know, what is God's response? And it's some ways a yes or no answer, but God does not answer in terms of yes or no, but looking deeper. What's in their hearts? What's going on in their hearts and their minds? And so we see that here. So we'll look, first of all, at the question. What's the question that people have, and, and why is that important? The question is there in verse 3. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for for so many years? During the fifth month, they had a special day of fasting. Now, it comes from uh, a couple of leaders uh, from Bethel, and they're likely representatives of a whole group of people. And uh, there's certain things you could notice from the question. First, is the, it says, I. And you'd be left wondering who that I is. We can't tell, but we can tell the nature of the person who's asking the question. Because it comes from someone who's religious. And really is representing maybe the pious Jews of that day. Someone who's been engaged in religious fasting for a long time. Indeed, in God's answer, he says it's been 70 years now. And that's as long as the, the temple has been destroyed. And so they are fasting because of the temple, because of its destruction. And they're seeking the answer from Yahweh and from his priests 
would be at the temple. So they know that they're to approach the God of the Bible and, and ask him for the answer. Not, they're not seeking the answer from Baal or from the, the gods of the Babylonians. And so we can see that they're religious. They're part of the Jewish remnant that's looking to God and wanting to know, asking, what does God want from us in this particular situation? The second thing to notice is there's a very specific time when they come and ask ask this question. It's the fourth day of the ninth month of the fourth year of King Darius. If you want to be precise, that's December 7th, 518 B.C. We know exactly when it was. And the importance is a little bit more than two years earlier, they started rebuilding the temple. And it takes four years. And so they're halfway or maybe a little bit more than halfway through that process of rebuilding. And it started by taking away all the rubble, then relaying the, the foundation And it's likely that they're beginning to put up some walls. The building is beginning to take shape. And so the question they ask, should we continue fasting? And what was the purpose of the fast in the fifth month? Well, it's found in 2 Kings 25, 8, 9. In the fifth month on the uh, seventh day of the month, that is the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzarand, the captain of the bodyguard, or servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord. That's the temple. The king's house and the palace. And every great house he burned down. So he burned and destroyed the temple. And so those who were religious started fasting by the very next year to mourn the destruction of the temple. And they've been doing so now for 70 years. And so it's a pretty legitimate question. As you see the the temple going up, and you're mourning over its destruction, well, at what point do you stop? And God also refers to the fast of the seventh month. That was another fast, was over the destruction of the walls of the city. And at one point, when those city walls are rebuilt, do you stop mourning and fasting over it? And as you would notice, uh, in 819, uh, a chapter comes along and answers really the question here, they really had four fasts. The fourth month was when uh, the walls were beached. The fifth was when the temple was burned. The the seventh uh, was the assassination of Gedaliah and the 10th were the beginning of the siege of the city. And so that fifth month recognized the end of the temple, the end of the temple worship. But now it's being rebuilt. Should they continue to fast? And they maybe are looking forward in six more months. How far along will that rebuilding go? Will it be done? 
And do they, can they stop fasting? Now the answer that's given in verse 4 and following is to all the people and the priests. This is not a private matter. These feasts have become incorporated into the religious duties of the devout Jews. You may remember in the New Testament, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. There's a tendency to add things to the religious duties. And so they've added these fast days. There's no place required in Scripture. And the fifth thing to notice about this is it seems to be a very straightforward yes or no question. Yes, continue to fast. No, don't fast anymore. Or maybe a qualified yes, fast for two more years. But notice God's answer doesn't start with an answer. He ultimately hints at an answer in the next chapter. But there's something more fundamental that God needs to address to the people. That leads us then to our second point. What's the principle that's involved here that God wants his people to understand? Well, it's really the nature of true worship. When you add these fasts on, was it really part of true worship of God? Because that is what God wants. And so he addresses it. And and oftentimes we see in scripture people coming with the the wrong question. You may think about the the rich young ruler as he comes to to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to have an inherent life? Eternal life. And Jesus doesn't say, well, he begins by saying, why do you call me good? He's having the young man think about how do you define good? And then Jesus goes on to say, no one is good but God. He's really pointing out, your definition of good is wrong. And then your question, what must I do? He answers, You must be a disciple. It's not what you do, but whose disciple you are. Or you think of the man born blind. Who who sinned? This man or his parents? And the answer is neither. And so God is giving that type of response here. Should we stop or shouldn't we stop? He answers it with two rhetorical questions. Verse 5. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these 70 years, the whole time of the captivity, was it for me that you fasted? And the implied answer is no. You really weren't thinking about God. You are doing it to make yourselves feel better. You are making it, you are doing it so others would, would think more nicely of you. Well, look at how deeply he cares about 
God in his worship. You weren't asking, what does the God of the universe want? And why should I be fasting? And then the second question is, when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? And here the answer is, yes. The focus is on me, what I want, my needs, my desires. I'm controlled by my physical desires. And I'm not thinking about God's grace and God's mercy. I'm not thinking about how much I deserve judgment at the hands of a holy God. This has already come up in the former prophets, the Old Testament prophets. You could read in Isaiah 58, verses 3 to 7. Why have we fasted? The people ask you, and you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves? You need to take no knowledge of it. And God's response, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself. Is it to bow down? his head like a reed, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast, and an day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I choose? To lose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, And bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. That's what God was looking at. That was what God was desiring, was to see change in the heart. A humility. A giving of mercy to others. And not just an outward show. Those previous generations had showed hypocrisy when they fasted. Today we would call it virtual signaling. And there's many who do that, who who want to be seen in a certain light. Whether it's a political leader or a company. You know, we're we're against any sort of uh, oppression. In this country, uh, people being, being not allowed to vote. Oh, we ha- in China, we have factories that have basically slave labor over there. They have tremendously high suicide rates because of the work environment they're in. But we, we notice every lost vote in this country. They want to be seen. And that day they wanted to be seen how virtuous they were. But their hearts didn't match. 
And so as it talks about exploiting the employee, how many times do you see in the prophets mention of that? Enslaving others, taking advantage of the, of the poor and the needy, uh, the orphan, the widow. And so God condemned their worship and decreed a destruction. And as at the end of the chapter, it talks about what God did, how he sent them away to foreign lands. Significantly, as they came up with these four days of fasting, there's only one day of fasting that's found in the Old Testament. And that was on the Day of Atonement. So we see that Fasting is related to humbling themselves, of understanding your neediness before God, your need of grace from God that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so that's what God wants when people fast, is that genuine heart that is humble before him, that recognizes its sinfulness, the person's sinfulness, and especially as it would come to worship. Because these are part of the peripherals, we might say, of worship. And the basic question of worship is, what does God want? We often have worship wars uh, between those who like contemporary worship and, and those who, who like more traditional worship. There's a very large and influential congregation that has built, been built on one question. What does unbelieving Bill and unbelieving Mary want in worship? And that's the question they ask all the time. And they talk to people, and they listen. And the average unbelieving Bill or the unbelieving Mary comes and says, you know, those prayers are boring. So they get rid of prayer. If you're in a very patriotic uh, part of the country, well, they want to have a big Fourth of July celebration. And so you structure your worship. So you have a huge U.S. flag and a, and a band and orchestra leading, you know, God bless America. Or a nativity scene with live animals. Or clips of Leave it to Beaver. But do you ever ask, what's important to God? What does God want in worship? And it begins, it doesn't end here, but it begins with Jesus Christ. The most important thing we need to think about in terms of worship is that our worship has to be through Jesus Christ, done to honor Jesus Christ, for the glory of Jesus Christ, and with his leading us in his worship.
it eliminates all this extra and elevates worship to the proper place it should have. It's the way we avoid a formality in worship, just going through the motions as we come in faith, faith in Jesus Christ, and give our worship. Which then leads us to our our third point as you go on and look at verses uh, 9 and following. This true worship, this worship that is done to glorify Jesus Christ, done in his name, done in faith to him, will lead to a changed lifestyle. True worship will have a transforming effect in the lives of Christians. And so it goes on to talk about what does it mean? Render true judgment. Not oppressing the poor, not uh, accepting bribes, not favoring the rich or the famous, but a concern for what is true and fair. And as a nation, we talk a lot about justice and our demonstrations about justice and wanting to ensure justice. But I think we've lost sight of what true justice is. To show kindness and mercy to one another. I wonder how many think about that when they're arguing with some opponent. And too often now becoming death threats against the person if you disagree with me. Where true justice would involve showing kindness and mercy to others that each one is made with dignity and has worth because they're made in the image of God. And it goes on to add, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your hearts. Now, as you look at that list, it doesn't require a super spirituality. There may be things in the Christian life that are very difficult to to endure. But to do these things, to care for the fatherless, to take note of the, the sojourner, the poor, those are things that we can do. Those are things that uh, those who heard the former prophets fail to heed. And so it's a warning to us, an encouragement, don't be like them. Notice in verse 11 how they're described. They refused to pay attention. They turned a stubborn shoulder to God and to his prophets. The idea is an animal an ox or something that you've got yoked up and you're directing them one way, if they turn a stubborn shoulder, you know, you're trying to get them to go right and they're headed left. They're rebelling as far as they can against you, turning the opposite way. They stop their ears so they might not hear. And how many today want to stop their ears and not hear what God says? 
about immorality, about divorce, the sanctity of life, the nature of a family. They made their hearts diamond hard. The diamond is the hardest naturally occurring element that we have. And so it implies a heart that is not being penetrated by God and his word. Don't be like those forefathers. Now we should know that we have a better hope because we have a full revelation of the gospel. We can look and see the, the work of the Messiah. We see what it costs to be brought to God. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We see his victory over sin and death and the evil one. His being raised victorious from the dead. We know of his intercession for us right now, even in heaven. We also have the complete word of God in the Bible. We have a greater fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not by our own efforts, but it's through Christ and his spirit working in us that we can be changed, that we can be transformed. As we think about applications, I mentioned three. First, there's really a warning here, an encouragement not to do it, of turning a deaf ear to God. It's all too possible to come to the worship and go out the same person you are as you came in. To not heed what God is saying. I encourage you, you as you you come to the worship, always be in prayer. Always being looked to respond. How does this change me? How does this affect me? Realizing what's going on in your heart is crucial. Second, to consider the the question of what does God want in worship? It begins with a focus on Jesus Christ. That he is to be central, that we come in faith to the worship, faith in Jesus Christ. We seek to exalt him in the worship, the singing and the prayers, The reading of scripture all points us to to Jesus Christ and what he has done. And that should be what attracts unbelievers. Because that satisfies their deepest need. And others might say, well, we need to shorten prayers. We lose people with long prayers. Well, what an unbeliever needs to understand is there's a living God to whom they must give an account and they must start a relationship. They must be in prayer.
And third is to always consider as you leave the Lord's house, how are you going to be different? What's going to be different Monday morning or Tuesday night or with your spouse or toward your children at your work to the neighbor across the street? How having been with Jesus Christ corporately in a special way is your life different? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this uh, portion of scripture and it reminds us that uh, oftentimes we are asking the wrong questions. We think in our categories of what we want to have answered and and miss out on the bigger picture. And it's easy in terms of religious activity to, to go through the motions, to do the right things, to do what's expected of us. Whether that be a, a pastor, an elder, a deacon, one of the children sitting in, in the pews, By your spirit, help us not to do that. Help us to come each week expecting to, to meet you in a very personal, life-changing way. And help us uh, go forth as, as changed people, making an impact on those around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.